Okay, welcome to Health Talk from Mars. It's out of this world. And on today's episode, I'm going to share some important information regarding blood sugar, diabetes, and prediabetes, along with some advice about how to manage and avoid the sequelae or problems associated with higher than ideal blood sugar levels. Stay tuned. Okay, on today's talk and episode podcast, we're going to do a talk about diabetes, prediabetes, and elevated blood sugar. This is a problem that has gotten into epidemic proportions, yet no one's talking about it. When we look at COVID and people that get more severe symptoms, this is probably one of the main comorbidities associated with developing COVID and more severe symptoms. In 2012, 29 million people in the United States had diabetes. Fast forward to today, it's now guesstimated that there's 37 million people with diabetes. And when you include prediabetes, which is a condition we're gonna talk about, in 2012, there were 86 million Americans, and now there's 96 million Americans. So a recent study that just came out on JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, they came out with the startling statistic that half of all adults in the United States have diabetes or prediabetes. So right now there's about 333 million Americans. So half of that's 165 million Americans now have prediabetes or diabetes. And most people don't have any idea that they have this condition. So I want to talk a little bit about what is the problem with having high blood sugar and what are the symptoms and signs that are associated with it. So there's many collateral symptoms that are connected to elevated blood sugar levels. One of the most important problem is cardiovascular disease. So when you look at death statistics and you look at cardiovascular disease deaths, many of these cardiovascular disease deaths are due to diabetes or elevated blood sugar. So the development of arterial plaques, microangiopathy that leads to peripheral neuropathy is is in all-time epidemic proportions kidney damage, chronic infections of all types, skin reactions, yeast infections are all greatly increased with elevated levels of blood sugar. Also, you can probably link many of the problems associated with mental illness, including depression, insomnia, problems with anxiety are related to very sharp fluctuations in blood sugar levels. So the problem is not either you have diabetes or you don't. The problem is that you may have the prediabetes condition or even before that, elevated levels of blood sugar that would be considered not to be ideal. So there is a condition that used to be called Syndrome X, and now it's called Metabolic Syndrome. Metabolic Syndrome is a condition whereby blood sugar is elevated. You have central adiposity. That means in your mid-abdominal area, you have extra fat. And then you have elevated blood pressure. 
and elevated triglycerides. So those are the hallmark symptoms or signs of Syndrome X. Again, most people that have elevated blood pressure don't even know they have elevated blood pressure. There's a new definition of first-stage blood elevated blood pressure or hypertension that has reduced the numbers. So it used to be 140 over 90 were the classic parameters for elevated blood sugar, anything over that. And now 130 over 85 is the new cutoff point. So if you've got first stage elevated blood pressure, you've got some extra weight in the middle. And of course, we went over this previously. We know that 42.4% of Americans today have obesity, which is a startling statistic. So many of these people automatically have syndrome X or metabolic syndrome. That's a, a huge number of people. In the United States, about 70% of our population is overweight. So <clears throat> overweight means that they have central adiposity and they have special fat <clears throat> that lines the organs. And we know that this fat that lines the organs is actually a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease and other pathologies. And we're going to talk a little bit about some diagnostic tests that you can request your physician to use to make a more definitive diagnosis of where you stand. I've taught nutrition for about 35 years at different medical schools. And when I first started teaching back in 1988, what was considered to be normal blood sugar was 100 and 40 and below. So as long as you were below 140, you were good to go. Then they decided, well, I think there's a problem with that. 1997, they changed the criteria and they said, well, if your blood sugar is 126 or higher on two separate occasions, you officially have diabetes. There was another diagnosis if your blood sugar was between 100 and 126. Basically, you had what they first diagnosed was impaired glucose tolerance. So no one knew what that meant. So they decided, well, let's change the wording and let's call it prediabetes. When people hear that word diabetes, they immediately think of Uncle Bill and having his toes amputated and sores down in his feet and problems with being able to, to heal his tissues. And that's another classic symptom. Elevated blood sugar is inability to heal very well. It takes much longer to heal different wounds. So what I'd like to do now is I would like to explain a little bit about the most classic diagnostic test that's run by physicians is called hemoglobin A1C. So hemoglobin A1C, <clears throat> abbreviated as A1C, you hear on television commercials, is a measurement of your average blood sugar over the last two and a half months. So this is a simple and critical test that everyone should have done on a yearly basis. So the A1C, if you take a look at it, comes usually expressed as usually in the fives or the six range. And what's considered to be non-diabetic is anything 5.6 and below. So that's your, your key number. When you hit 5.7, it 
that means that you now have prediabetes. When you hit 6.5, that means that you now have diabetes officially. So those are the basic parameters. And I'd like to explain a little analogy of how hemoglobin A1C works. So hemoglobin A1C is basically a measurement of the average blood sugar in a red blood cell. So a red blood cell lives 120 days. And think of the red blood cell as a, as a little sponge. And however much sugar you have in your blood, those little sponges soak up that sugar. A very young red blood cell hasn't had much time to soak up much sugar, so the level's fairly low. An old red blood cell getting to its end of its lifespan basically is going to have the highest level of blood sugar. So on an average, your red blood cell is about two and a half months old. So the A1C represents your average blood sugar over the course of the last two and a half months. And there's a number of factors that can affect the A1C and give you a false low or false high reading, but it's an excellent test to look at. At 5.0 of A1C, your average blood sugar is about 97. So we're going to get back to these numbers, so they're really important. So for every 0.1 on an A1C, your blood sugar goes up three is three points. So from 5 to 5.1 is 97 to 100. When you get to 5.3, which is what I consider to be the ideal level, 5.3 and below, your blood sugar is 106. 5.5, so now you're 112 on an average. That's just to give you a little bit of an idea. So, And we're going to talk about an extremely important test that most physicians never entertain because it's too much work, too much time, and just too much of a pain to do. But it's actually one of the greatest diagnostic tests that you can run to evaluate where your blood sugar is at. The name of that test is called a glucose insulin tolerance test. So back in the 70s, the diagnosis of hypoglycemia was a really common one in alternative medicine. You got headaches, you're dizzy, you can't concentrate, you can't sleep. Well, maybe you're experiencing hypoglycemic symptoms. Hypoglycemia is low blood sugar. One of the, di- the most important diagnostic tools is to do a glucose tolerance test. So you drink a certain amount of sugar, comes as glucose, 75 grams. First, you get a fasting glucose. So you do this first thing in the morning, earlier in the morning. And then you get your blood and you get your fasting insulin. And then you test your blood sugar about every 30 minutes or so. And you see what the elevation is of your blood sugar. Ideally, you shouldn't go over 130, 140 tops. So when it starts getting into 170, 180, that gets to the edge of the threshold of the kidneys. And at that point, the kidneys can't handle that blood sugar and the blood sugar starts spilling into your urine. So when you start having sugar in your urine, you know that you're having some really high levels of blood sugar. So that's not a good thing. So a great simple test that can be run that you can request from your physician is something called fasting insulin. 
So it's becoming more popular now. It's not considered to be alternative anymore because now we know that your fasting insulin gives us a really good readout of how sensitive your insulin is. So we mentioned that there was a condition, impaired glucose tolerance. And impaired glucose tolerance is now called prediabetes. And in prediabetes, what we have is a situation where the insulin does not bind properly to the receptor site. So I use this wonderful, I think it's a wonderful analogy, and that is you're at a big hotel. You got a busload of people. You bring that busload of people to the front of the hotel. You drop them off. They go into the lobby. They go to the front desk. They give them the credit card. They pay. And what do they get? They get a key to their room. So they go down the hallway. They find their room, put the key, the electronic key in there. And voila, the door opens. They're in. Everyone's in their rooms and they're getting ready for whatever they're doing for the rest of the day. So the analogy is the busload of people, those are glucose molecules. Each person represents one glucose molecule. They go to the front desk. The front desk is your pancreas. So the pancreas, what does the pancreas do? It releases insulin. So what the front desk does is give you a key, and that's the same thing as insulin. So now there's a key for each person they go down to their room, and they get to the receptor site. So that's the insulin receptor. They put the key in the hole, and voila, the door opens. The sugar molecules go into their cells. So the rooms represent the cells of the people. So, And this happened in, in a conference I went to uh, about a year ago. It was really funny, and I was like, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I talk about impaired glucose tolerance, inability for insulin receptors. So the keys weren't working. It was at a really nice hotel in Phoenix. It was the Biltmore, which we love, but they were just having some problems with their keys. So pretty soon everyone had three or four keys in their pockets because the keys weren't working. And that is exactly what happens in prediabetes. One of the first stages is you get an elevation of your insulin. So looking at insulin carefully on a fasting specimen gives us a really excellent idea of where you're at. Normally, I like to see a fasting insulin of 7 or below. So when you get up to the 10, 11, 12 range, you definitely are having elevated insulin. And that's really important. Now, the reference range on labs is crazy. It's usually like 10 to 30 on the fasting insulin, which is totally inaccurate. And that's a serious problem. That's like that with a number of reference ranges. Back in the day, a 240 cholesterol was considered to be normal. And then they realized, well, a lot of people are dying at 240. We better lower it to 220. So they lowered it to 220. And they said, boy, you know, there's still a lot of people dying of, of you know, cardiovascular disease. We're going to lower that to 200. And that's where it is today. And in fact, they could lower it even more and they could lower it down to about 170 would be great. Okay, so one of the things that we look for on the glucose insulin tolerance test is, again, we mentioned about how, how high your blood sugar should go. Your blood sugar, 130, 140 tops, and then it should come back down again. Within one hour, you should be back to your fasting level. 
Ideal fasting blood sugar, a little controversial. 70 to 90 is a pretty good range, but really, if you're below 80, that's even better. So it just means that you have less glycosylation going on. And glycosylation, we're going to talk a little bit about glycosylation and what that means in your body. How does that present as pathology? But one of the things that we're going to talk about right now, especially, is why are those insulin receptors, why are they not working properly? Why don't the keys fit into the keyhole? Why aren't they not properly binding and opening up those doors to allow sugar to go into your cell? Well, the reason is elevated levels of fats in the blood. If we remember when I talked about metabolic syndrome, one of the hallmark signs was elevated triglycerides. Triglycerides are fats in your blood. So fats in your blood cause a clogging up of those receptors. And when your fasting triglyceride level starts to go above 100, we get this phenomenon called rouleau formation. Rouleau is a French word that means stacks. So what happens is the red blood cells start stacking together on one another. And when they stack together and they stick to each other, it reduces the amount of oxygen that can get to your tissues because a red blood cell needs to fit into a tiny capillary. A capillary can only allow one red blood cell to fit in. And the red blood cell has to like flatten out and squirm through that capillary before it releases its oxygen. So glycosylation, a great analogy is like cinnamon roll. That gooey, sticky sugar in food science is called caramelization. In the body, that same phenomenon is called glycosylation. So you can think of a little tiny capillary that can only fit one red blood cell. When that capillary gets all gummed up because the sugars in there are reacting with the proteins, what happens is it causes a blockage of that capillary. And when the red blood cell tries to come in there and fit to release its oxygen, can't fit. So all of the area that that capillary is supposed to supply with oxygen becomes hypoxic and it dies. And that is the beginning of cell death. And when you have cell death, especially to the neurons, that's how you get peripheral neuropathy. So peripheral neuropathy is a classic sign of diabetes. It's usually called diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And what happens is the tissue dies, and if you get cut or you get a sore, now the body loses its ability to heal that tissue. It can't heal because the oxygen can't get in there, and also the nutrients can't get in there as well because those capillaries have been all gummed up. So that's a serious problem right there. We want to keep those capillaries as open as possible, and we can, again, evaluate that process to see how high your insulin is and to see where your lipids are. You know, it should be less than 100, ideally even less than 70 on a fasting specimen. Now, I tell my patients to come in. They don't have to fast usually unless I'm getting a fasting insulin. But to get your triglycerides, sometimes it's actually better to have people eat a meal 
and see how high their triglycerides go. If the triglycerides are 200, 300 on a non-fasting specimen, that's too high. So what we know is that people that have good cardiovascular systems and people that have good blood sugar health, their level of triglycerides much lower. And if they eat food that has fat in it, within a relatively short period of time, their triglycerides go back to fasting. So again, fasting, ideally 70 and below is where you want to be. And so another uh, marker that we can look for in the blood is something called glycomark. Now, this is a test that most people haven't heard of. So glycomark is a measurement of how high your blood sugar spikes. So there's a compound in the blood, 1,5-dehydroglucotol, and this compound reaches certain levels in the blood. When your blood spikes and gets to above the renal threshold, 170, 180, what happens is the level of glucotol starts to go down. And we can measure that. So if your 1,5-dehydroglucotol is below 10, that means you're experiencing some significant blood sugar spikes. So here's an important takeaway message. Two people with the same exact hemoglobin A1c, let's say they're both 5.5, one has a glycomark measurement of 5, another one has a glycomark measurement of 20. The one that's 20 is actually going to be pretty good. The one that's at 5, they're having more severe blood sugar spikes. Their average is the same according to the A1c, but one is having blood sugar spikes, and those spikes are going to cause more glycosylation, more damage to those insulin receptors. Again, I can't stress enough, insulin receptors are extremely important, and we're going to talk about some things that we can do to get those insulin receptors more cleaned up so that they're not all gumpy. So we talked about some main tests related to blood sugar. I just wanted to mention a couple other things that you can also measure. One of them is liver enzymes. That's a basic test on a comprehensive metabolic profile. Uh, you would measure SGOT, SGPT, and GGT. So those are some basic liver enzymes. Now, as a naturopathic physician, when I look at these levels of liver enzymes, I don't want to just see them in the normal range. I want to see them in the low normal range. In other words, like SGOT, I think is around 40 and so if your level's at 35, well, that means you're pushing the edge. And that means that there's damage happening to the liver. So think of the liver as a bunch of water balloons. And inside those water balloons, there's a fluid that contains enzymes, liver enzymes. If I was to take a pin and poke little holes in those balloons, the liquid with the enzymes would spill out, go into the bloodstream. And then we could measure that. So if you went out and drank a fifth of Jack Daniels and I measured your blood liver enzymes in the morning, they would be elevated. So it doesn't take that much alcohol to get your liver enzymes elevated. And that's definitely not a good thing. So over the course of time, what happens is there's a certain amount of inflammation that happens in the liver, low level of inflammation. 
So there is an important condition called NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Just a fancy way of saying you got fat getting deposited in your liver. Now, if you don't look at the liver, you're not going to see this. But if you do a simple ultrasound and request, hey, doc, I'd like to take a look at my liver. I'd like to see if I have any fatty infiltration. Can you order an ultrasound? It's a relatively inexpensive test. It's simple, non-invasive. And if you've got fat in the liver, that's definitely a problem. So there was a movie called Super Size Me. Spurlock was his name. And he decided to go on an all McDonald's diet for a period of time. And at first he went to the cardiologist, got evaluated, his blood, and then he proceeded to go on this diet. Three weeks later, he went back to his cardiologist. Cardiologist looked at his numbers. Liver enzymes were a little elevated. They did an ultrasound of his liver. He had fatty infiltration in his liver in as little as three weeks' time. So that was a startling revelation. And the cardiologist recommended that you stop this nonsense immediately. Don't continue this diet. You're killing yourself. I think he went on for another week or so before he terminated his diet. But anyway, it's an example of how quickly things can run amok in the body. So that's definitely not a good thing. An ultrasound of your liver can be a valuable tool to see where you are on the spectrum. You don't want any fat in your liver. So the other thing that you want to measure is your kidney function. One of the big problems with elevated blood sugar, and, and again, it doesn't have to be diabetes. It could be just elevated blood sugar. It doesn't even have to be prediabetes. What happens is it can cause damage to your kidneys. And there's a couple very simple tests. One of them is creatinine, and the other one is BUN. BUN stands for blood urine nitrogen. So every time you eat protein foods, the protein gets broken down into different components, one of which is nitrogen. That nitrogen goes to the kidneys, the kidneys filter it out, and then hopefully you don't have much nitrogen circulating around in your blood. Same thing like creatinine. Creatinine gets produced by your muscle tissue a certain amount every day. And then as it goes to the kidneys, kidneys filter it. And if the kidneys are impaired in some way, what happens is both creatinine and the nitrogen in the blood starts to rise. And the thing about the nitrogen is that that can be affected by how much protein that you eat. So if you're eating a really large amount of protein, you're taking protein powders, you could have an elevated BUN just because of that and not because of impaired kidney function. So measuring both of them together gives you something called a GFR, glomerular filtration rate. So this GFR is a really important component, although it's not very sensitive. So the reference range is anything above 60 is considered to be perfectly normal. Problem with that is you could have a GFR of 60 and you could lose 90% of your kidney function. So the kidneys are super efficient at doing what they do. So they are, they're great. They're amazing. If you're close to 60 on your GFR, 
there's another test called cystatin C. Cystatin C is a test that you would use if your GFR is close to 60. The benefit of cystatin C is that cystatin C can detect low levels of kidney damage. It's a more sensitive test than the GFR. So the GFR, some labs will just report, oh, you're greater than 60, you're good to go. Well, if you're 61, you might not be good to go. The cystatin C is a simple test you can do that will basically differentiate and tell you, oh, you do have some impairment of your kidney function, so you're not totally out of the woods. Okay. There's some other very important tests that also are related to blood sugar abnormalities. So we talked about triglycerides damaging insulin receptors. Now we're going to talk about iron damaging insulin receptors. So there's a couple of tests that you need to run to evaluate your iron status. One of them is called ferritin. Now ferritin is an acute phase reactant. What that means is if you have inflammation in the body, say you break a bone, you get into a car accident, you got some spleen damage, well, any kind of inflammation in the body is going to elevate your ferritin. Now, if you don't have something else that's causing that to happen, ferritin is a really good measurement for your iron stores in your body. Ideally, you want your iron stores to be low normal. You don't want them to be in the middle and you don't want them to be high. That's a problem. So there's another test that you need to do when you do your, fer your ferritin measurement, and that's called the percent transferrin saturation. So the percent transferrin saturation is not affected by inflammation in the body. It's pretty steady. The analogy is the reference range on percent transferrin saturation is usually 20 to 50. I like to give people analogies. One of the analogies I use is you're in a, a Mini Cooper and you're going on a trip. You got a group of people. You got four Mini Coopers and you got camping gear. You got food. You got toys. You got all kinds of stuff. So how many people would you want in each of those Mini Coopers? Well, you don't want, you can't fit four in there. That's too much. One person, if you get tired and you got to pull off the road, you have no one to take over, you have no one to talk to. So ideally, one and a half people in each car. That analogy of one and a half people in each car is a percent transfer and saturation of between 20 and 30. So when you're below 20, that means that you're missing a person in one of the cars. That's not good. You want to have at least one person in each car. If you got six or seven people in each of the cars, that's hemochromatosis. You got all full. A percentage transfer and saturation of above 35, you got three and four people in the cars. And that's not good. That increases your risk, as I mentioned. Cancer, heart disease, diabetes, inflammation, Alzheimer's disease, all kinds of things. So you want low normal levels of iron. And, and this is a diagnosis that's free, frequently misdiagnosis, and that is iron deficiency anemia. So we're going to talk a little bit about CBC. CBC is a blood count, very simple test. Every physician usually orders a comprehensive metabolic profile and a CBC. Those are the basics. Then you've got add-ons from that. 
So in a CBC, you look to see if you're anemic. You look at the red blood cell count, hematocrit, and hemoglobin. Hemoglobin's a color. Hematocrit is the percentage of your blood that's made out of red cells. Usually it's around 40%. When you start getting up to 50%, that's too high. Your blood's too thick. When you start getting down below 35%, that's anemia. But anemia is caused by different reasons. There's large cell anemia and small cell anemia. Large cell anemia is called macrocytic anemia. Macrocytic anemia is due to a deficiency of vitamin B12 or folic acid. And the cells, red cells, get bigger and bigger. So there's a measurement called mean cell volume. Mean cell volume tells you how big your red cell is. So the reference range is 80 to 100. So you want your mean cell volume to be 90. That would be perfect. Between 85 and 95 is good. When you start getting into 97, 98, 99, even though you're in the range, that's too high. It means that your red blood cells are getting bigger. Maybe you're low in B12 or folic acid. When they get too small, like below 82, 81, that means you have anemia from iron deficiency, most likely, or vitamin B6 deficiency, or copper deficiency. And those two are less, much less common. A lot of physicians, if they see anemia, they immediately just give iron because most of the time it's related to iron deficiency. But if you look at that mean cell volume and you look at their ferritin and their percent transfer saturation, you'll be able to tell if they really do need iron. There's one other test that's very uncommon. It's called soluble transferrin receptors. Soluble transferrin receptors are receptors on the cells that are created in response to binding iron. So when the body's low in iron, it makes more of these receptors because it wants to bind on whatever iron is available out there. So when the body's deficient in iron, you get more of these soluble receptors spilling into the bloodstream, and we can measure them. So if you have high levels of soluble transferrin receptors floating in the bloodstream, most likely you got iron deficiency. And then that's a time where you can give iron. But oftentimes, iron prescriptions are done without due cause. In other words, that's not the problem here. And you're actually going to make the person much worse because you're going to be feeding this toxic compound into the body, which it doesn't need. Some other important points to make with regards to blood sugar is that when your blood sugar reaches that certain threshold in the kidneys, what happens is you start spilling a little sugar into the urine. But what also is happening at the same time is you start to spill electrolytes. One of those electrolytes is magnesium. So on a previous podcast, we talked about the critical importance of magnesium in the body, one of the most important minerals in the body that regulates heart disease, blood flow to your tissues, gut problems, women with dysmenorrhea, or in pregnancy, preeclampsia, all can be related to a deficiency of magnesium. So the best way to measure magnesium is to measure inside the cell because Magnesium is concentrated in the heart muscle about 20 times more than what's in the bloodstream. 
So if you measure in the bloodstream and it comes out normal, you don't necessarily know what's inside the cell. So what's better is to measure the actual magnesium level in a red blood cell. So this is a more common test that can be done, red blood cell magnesium. Ideally, you want to be above the midline on the magnesium, red blood cell magnesium. Diabetics almost all the time are going to be deficient in magnesium. And what does that do? Increases the likelihood that they develop hypertension and headaches and joint pains and muscle stiffness. So all this can be related to elevated blood sugar. Measuring intracellular magnesium is a great idea. There's another test, not so common, called an exit test. It was developed by Dr. Burton Silver from Brooklyn, New York, way back when in 1992. And it's a measurement of magnesium and other minerals like potassium as well underneath the tongue. So they take a scraping of your tongue, just a light scraping, and they put it on a slide. They put a fixative on that, and they send an X-ray beam through those cells, and they can tell each mineral fluoresces at a different wavelength. So I want to say a word about potassium because potassium and magnesium, along with calcium, are intimate buddies. So when magnesium is low, the body's ability to keep potassium inside the cell starts to deteriorate. Potassium is critical for keeping the pH of the blood more alkaline. And also, potassium is critical for your blood pressure. The K factor by Dr. Richard Moore was written about the effect of potassium on blood pressure. Most everyone is deficient in potassium when you look at their blood levels. Ideally, your blood levels of potassium should be 4.6 or higher. When you start getting down into the low fours and the upper threes, that's deficient. Now, word of caution, if you have some type of kidney damage that diabetics develop, they can end up with elevated levels of potassium, falsely elevated, because the kidneys aren't filtering properly and potassium is not getting cleared properly. So it can be a little tricky. You want to make sure, again, you consult with a physician so you get a clear diagnosis of what's going on. But measuring potassium levels, also really important. A couple other inflammatory markers that are really important with regards to the insulin receptor. One is CRP, C-reactive protein or peptide, is a marker for general inflammation in the body. Usually highly specific CRPs related to inside your, your blood vessels. So if you have a high level of CRP, that means you have some inflammation going on and that needs to be addressed. And there's many reasons why you can get inflammation, one of which is elevated insulin levels. Elevated insulin causes problems with inflammation in the body. So having elevated insulin in itself, even if the blood sugar is not that high, is definitely problematic. There's a couple other markers that measures for the stickiness of your blood. And we talked before about high fats in the blood lead to rouleau formation. Rouleau formation are stacks of red blood cells where they can't give off their oxygen very well. So one of which is fibrinogen, the other is D-dimer. So fibrinogen is a general marker of stickiness of your blood. 
and there's many things that can cause your fibrinogen to go up. The reference range is 200 to 400. I like to see fibrinogen less than 300. When the fibrinogen starts getting 375, 400, that's definitely high. Now you have a problem with excess clotting in the blood. Excess clotting, strokes, heart attacks. Again, you don't want sticky blood. That's why they recommend taking a baby aspirin to keep your blood from sticking together. Now, D-dimer is really interesting because D-dimer is a measurement of microclots in your blood. And again, there's many things that can cause microclots. An infection, a viral infection, can cause microclots in the blood. Inflammation somewhere in the body can cause microclots in the blood. Now, what we've discovered is that certain vaccines can cause microclots in the blood. COVID infection can cause microclots in the blood. Again, there's many things that can trigger it. Not a good thing to have, especially if you have impaired glucose tolerance or prediabetes. So a good thing that you can request to get measured. Okay, so now that we've scared you, you know, out of your pants and everyone thinks they've got prediabetes right now, which might not be far from the truth, what are you going to do about it? So that's a big topic, and I'm going to try to keep this as concise as possible. I'm going to refer you to some, refer some references, and I'm going to resort to a series of different ways to evaluate what's the best way to treat this dietarily-wise. So there is a wealth of valuable information. So one of my favorite books is The Longevity Diet by Walter Longo, who wrote a book about calorie restriction and a plant-based diet with a little bit of small fish might be the most ideal diet. When we look at blue zones, so blue zones, for those people that don't know what blue zones are, blue zones are areas in the world where people live a long time and they live very healthily. They don't get most of the diseases at nearly the same rate that we do in Western societies, Western cultures. So Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, much, much less. In these blue zones, what they did was they sent out demographers for areas in the world where they saw that there were some old people. And they put these blue dots and then they put a blue circle around it. And then where the highest concentration of these centenarians were, that got called a blue zone. So they've identified like five and a half blue zones in the world. There's two in the Mediterranean. One is Icaria. The other one is Sardinia, an island off the coast of Italy. And then there's Okinawa. And then there's Costa Rica, one of my favorite places. And Loma Linda in Southern California, the Seventh-day Adventists. And there's a little town that Dr. Walter Longo came from called Melucia. And it's in Calabria, the area of Calabria. And they have a very high level number percentage-wise of centenarians, but it's really small, and so it's not one of the five main ones. But anyway, what do these people eat? That is the question. And how come they're not getting diabetes? Let's take a careful dive and see what their macro percentage is. So one thing to look at in your diet is the percentage of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Again, a lot of controversy over this, but to me, it's clear beyond any shadow of a doubt. In the blue zones, 
their level of carbohydrate is between 57% and 75%. So they eat a relatively high carbohydrate diet, but they just don't eat any carbohydrates. In fact, the Okinawans, very interesting, there was a big war going on and there was an embargo and they were short of food. And 80% of their calories for over 50 years came from sweet potatoes, which they called emo. And in fact, I've got video clips of trucks traveling around, like ice cream trucks in Okinawa, basically selling sweet potatoes in tinfoil. So they go around like, instead of ice cream, they're doing sweet potatoes. And they have a lot of varieties of sweet potatoes. The purple sweet potato is the most famous, which if it's purple, it's loaded with anthocyanidines. Anthocyanidines protect your cell membranes and the insulin receptors from getting clogging up. So you want to put as many flavonoids, flavonoids are pigments in food, in your diet to protect those receptors. So that's one thing that you can do. The other thing that's just critical is your fiber level. The average American gets about 11 and a half grams of fiber a day. When we take a look at these areas, blue zones, they eat a tremendously higher level of fiber. When we look at diets of Paleolithic people, Paleolithic people were consuming between 100 and 150 grams a day. That's crazy. That is a really unbelievable amount of fiber. And, of course, they had no diabetes back then. There's a tribe in Africa called the Hudza, and there's a book written, Rewild, by Jeff Leach. And he went there and studied this indigenous population, and he analyzed their gut flora. Your gut flora plays a really important role in inflammation in your body. You want to have good gut flora. Most people do not because, one, they take antibiotics indiscriminately, which kill off their good bugs. Two, they're not getting enough fiber in their diet. So fiber in your diet basically metabolizes in your intestinal tract into short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, propionate, fumarate. These short-chain fatty acids feed the beneficial microorganisms in your gut. Just add more fiber. There's a wonderful book called Fiber Fuel by Will Bulsowitz. He's a gastroenterologist. I urge everyone to read that book and get into the details. So again, fiber, critical nutrient to have. So we see people that are doing carnivore diets, like all they eat is like meat or ketogenic diets. Incidentally, when we look at blue zones, there's no ketogenic diets. There's no carnivore diets. There's none of this low-carb diet that is associated with health and longevity. So it's like, hmm, okay, something that we should pay attention to and learn. Okay, so what else do we know? Well, another thing that we know is calorie restriction. I mentioned Dr. Longo's book, The Longevity Diet. Well, in there, he talks extensively about calorie restriction. When you fast and you go into ketosis, the body starts making stem cells. When the body starts making stem cells, it's preparing for refeeding. So when you start to refeed, all of a sudden those stem cells go all throughout your body. 
And you don't have to tell them where to go. They know where to go. They know to replace those insulin receptors that aren't binding to insulin very well. One of the things that we know is short periodic fasts do an amazing job at bringing down blood sugar. I have many, many patients who I've cured and improved their blood sugar dramatically by doing periodic fasts. You don't have to do three, four weeks, but you could, especially if you're morbidly obese, that might be helpful. But what you should do is a short fast, like a five-day fast. In the longevity diet, Dr. Longo talks about doing short, periodic, five-day fasts, getting you into ketosis, generating those stem cells, creating new insulin receptors, and improving your blood sugar. Last year, I went to the largest, oldest fasting clinic in the world, Buchinger. It's in Germany. I went with a patient, and I basically did their program exactly as they did their program. And part of their program, I get to check my blood sugar. I brought, oh, and that's one thing that I want to advise people that they can get and start checking their own blood sugar. And that is they have different systems for measuring your blood sugar where a small needle goes into your arm and it's taped there. And then you could take your phone and scan it over the meter, check your blood sugar. So you can check your morning blood sugar. Remember we said 70 to 90 is ideal. Well, I'll tell you what, when I was fasting in Buhinger, my blood sugars came down as low as 39. I was a little nervous at that point. I wouldn't want my patient to go that low. And I felt a little woozy. I went on a 10-kilometer hike with no food and did great. One of the things that we know is that when your blood sugar your blood sugar gets up a little higher and it stays up there, your body gets used to that higher blood sugar. So when you start dropping your blood sugar down, all of a sudden you start to have symptoms, headaches, sweaty palms, feeling nervous, anxious, all these symptoms that are associated with hypoglycemia. But over time, if you do more and more fasting and more and more calorie restriction, and another way to do that is to do time-restricted feeding. Time-restricted feeding has become very popular. I've been doing it for about 30 years. Basically involves eating in a smaller period of time. Maybe you get up in the morning, don't eat, do your workout, go have a little bit of breakfast, 10, 11 o'clock, don't eat anything until 6 or 7 o'clock, eat your evening meal, that's it. So two meals a day, again, something I've been advocating for many, many years. And that, we find, greatly improves the insulin receptors and greatly improves how well insulin binds onto those receptors. When I was at the fasting clinic, I measured my fasting insulin, came out to one. I was like, whoa, that's really good. One doesn't get much better than one. And you don't need insulin because you're not eating anything. Now, they use a little bit of a broth. doesn't have much calories. I think I was consuming 114 calories a day. But anyway, the point is fasting is a great tool to use. When you come off the fast, Make sure you do a high level of fiber in your diet, at least 40 to 50 grams a day. That's quite a bit less than 100, but a lot more than 11 and a half what the average American gets. 
So there's things that you can supplement if you have blood sugar abnormalities. One of my favorite supplements that I use is called PGX. It was, written, it was designed by a colleague of mine, Dr. Michael Murray. He's a famous naturopath. He's written a dozen books or more by now. And in there, he talks about the effectiveness of PGX. So PGX, the main ingredient, is kanyaku or konjak. In Japan, it's called kanyaku, and it's used for weight loss. And what it is is a plant. It's a plant that grows in Asia, mostly. And this plant is extremely fibrous. And the nature of the fiber is that it's extremely soluble. It's the most soluble, viscous fiber ever discovered in nature. So what's the point of that? Well, the point is, if you take in some of this very viscous, soluble fiber in the form of konjac, before you eat, what happens is it'll greatly downregulate your glucose response. So monitoring your blood sugar to see how high it goes up after you eat a meal is really important. It's not the end all, but it's important. If your blood sugar tops out at 120, you're good to go and it comes down to your fasting level. That's great. That's what we want to see. So adding some fiber in there before you eat. Psyllium seed powder is something else you can do. So Metamucil is psyllium seed powder. That could be effective, but do it before you eat. So some other things to consider. We mentioned the concept of flavonoids. So flavonoids, and I mentioned the purple sweet potato, has anthocyanidines in it. So there's a wonderful book. It's called Foods to Fight Cancer. And Foods to Fight Cancer was written by doctors Bellevue and Gingras. And it's a book that came out uh, at least a decade ago. And in there, it talks about cancer, but it also alludes to diabetes. We know that elevated blood sugar will cause an increased level of pathogenic bacteria in your gut, one of which is candida albicans. You don't want a lot of candida in your gut. So the thing that stimulates candida albicans, one, antibiotics, of which we take too much of. In the United States, we use 35 million pounds of antibiotics a year. 28 million of those 35 go into animal feed. So when you eat the animals, you're getting all those antibiotics in your system. So lack of fiber, if you don't have enough fiber, you're not going to generate those short-chain fatty acids, fumarate, butyrate, and propionate. And those fatty acids are what stimulate the good bacteria in your gut. So a lot of foods that have fiber also have these flavonoids. We mentioned the purple sweet potato that the Okinawans eat. Purple sweet potatoes have anthocyanidines. So in this book, Foods to Fight Cancer, they talk about a whole long list of various types of flavonoids. Quercetin, carotenoids, which are yellow pigments in foods. Annatto extract, which contains an orange pigment and contains tocotrienols. Anything purple, uh, as we mentioned, Blackberries, blueberries have anthocyanidines. So all these flavonoids get concentrated into your receptors, the insulin receptors, and they basically clean them up. So the more of these flavonoids that you consume, and these flavonoids basically only come from plant sources. 
You're not getting them from animal sources. So the more you can get, the better. In the world today, we eat 200 foods on the planet. There's over 200,000 edible foods on the planet that we don't touch because we're not in the store. I can't eat that. They're not selling it. But there's things like dandelion. Now you can get dandelions in the store. That's cool. They have anthocyanidines. They have flavonoids in them. Cool. Let's eat some of those. Arugula. They've got flavonoids in there. When I went to Ikria, one of the things that happened in World War II, 13,000 communists got exiled from their homeland, and they got put on this island, Ikria. And in order to survive, they had to live off the land. So they started eating all the wild greens that grew on the land. So if you go to Greece and you want to eat food at a restaurant, one of the dishes that you're going to see on the menu is horta, and that's in Athens, Skopelos Island, Ikaria. You see that, and it's just really common. So horta are wild greens that just grow. So in Ikaria, they eat 80 different greens that grow wild. Wild purslane is one of them, which happens to be really high in vitamin E, one of the few sources of vitamin E. So that's great. We want to add that into the diet. So diversifying the diet as much as possible, eating as much fiber as possible, getting as many of these antioxidant nutrients is really important. And looking at, your again, your, your numbers on your blood work. If you have elevated LDL, so any LDL above 90 is too high, low-density lipoprotein, that's going to oxidize your cells. That's going to oxidize your insulin receptors. It's going to damage the ability of your body to bind insulin. So I created a product called OxyQuench Ultra. OxyQuench Ultra is a concentrated form of these flavonoids. It has carotenoids from an algae that grows off the coast of New Zealand. It has a natto extract that has tocotrienols. It has high levels of vitamin C. It has high levels of salimarin, which basically protect the liver against oxidative damage. If you've got elevated blood sugar, probably have some damage and fatty infiltration going on in the liver. You want to protect your liver. Do something nice to it. And there's a million other toxicants out there that are also getting into your liver that are affecting it. Doing an antioxidant like salimarin is a really great thing to do. Selenium is also really important. So anyway, I created this supplement specifically to protect the body against oxidative damage. So a diabetic, critical to have this in their body to protect their cells. In summary, what we talked about there's a number of books written about diabetes. Joel Furman, I, I love Eat to Live, is a great book that he wrote. I'm going to advocate high levels of complex carbohydrates, high levels of fiber, high levels of flavonoids, high levels of magnesium and potassium. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me through Instagram, Facebook, and my website, marsnutrition.net and I'd be happy to answer questions and whatnot. Signing out, Health from Mars, it's out of this world, over and out.